Welcome to The Risk Equation with Dr. Chris McGuire. This is a show constructed of conversations between myself and those taking on a high risk, high pressure and high performance jobs. We hope to chat with some of Australia's elite, offering us insight into what it takes to perform under the most strenuous of circumstances, engaging in candid and raw conversations with those who perhaps aren't always given the chance to share the struggles they've faced on their way to the top. Today's guest is Shana Kennedy, an executive life coach and best-selling author. Shana's work took her to the very top of corporate Australia, where she worked in our version of the Wolf of Wall Street. She then transitioned to the sporting industry and worked with more than 100 of the world's most elite athletes. Her experience has given her an unprecedented insight into the world of perfection and performance, allowing her to pivot into her current position of guide and mentor to Australia's best. On her way though, Shana suffered a devastating blow. Her body failed her. Unable to move and in constant pain, Shana sought help. And after a diagnosis of chronic fatigue, she was left bedridden, broken and barely functioning, driving her journey to the top to a sudden and devastating halt. Still years from recovery and a year into her battle, that's where we begin today's conversation with Shana. For your body to shut down when you're an A-type, overachieving, perfectionist, really driven person, it's frightening. It came at a time where people really didn't know what, what was happening. No one had really heard of chronic fatigue, so it was a time where you'd be lying in bed and everything is hurting. Every part of you is aching. You feel like you've got a hangover, but you've had water. You can't lift your limbs because they feel like so heavy. And I felt like someone had taken to my body with like a baseball bat. That's how painful it was. But I didn't look sick. I sort of just looked like my normal self. So it was really challenging because you'd look in the mirror and you'd say, well, what, what's wrong with me? But everything was shutting down. So psychologically and emotionally, it was terrifying because... It's not like you've got a broken arm and you've got plaster and you know what to do and how to fix it and how long it's going to take. It was really, there was, there was no roadmap. There was no explanation, I suppose. What was a day like for you at that point in time? What, what, what did that 24 hours look like? It's in bed or on the couch. Everything has to be dark because with chronic fatigue, your five senses are really shot to pieces so noise really hurts so you can't have the television on you can't look at anything bright you have to have sunglasses on um, still today now my ears really hurt if um, there's a high pitch smelling of the newspaper would burn my nose the ink trying to sleep uh, trying to rest and giving myself a really small goal which is maybe to try and have a shower which is really difficult because just turning the tap on would hurt. So there was nothing really to report for me for the day. Were your family uh, deeply involved in that process as well? We, was that a time when you uh, were married or had kids or were you by yourself at this point? I actually had a house and I had a housemate. Thank goodness, because he 
he was incredible. He would just cook some food and give me some food and put the bins out and tidy the place. My parents were incredible. They were coming over all the time. They were ringing me all the time, trying to try and have a conversation with me. When I did start to return to work, I, w- I would have to actually ring my mum and speak the whole way home in the car to remember where I was going. Um, so I'd, once you get really tired, your brain just shuts and you get really forgetful. So my, my parents were incredible. Um, my friends were in the beginning, but then it was like annoying because I was annoying because you look fine, what's wrong with you? We don't understand. Um, but yeah, my mum and dad, they, they, they could see it in my eyes. One of the things that strikes me about the way you're describing that situation is that it's filled with hopelessness that it seems like every day is this incredible struggle just to get by with the basics, let alone doing anything else. And there's no answers to it. No one has a good roadmap, like you say. And yet there was something inside of you, whether that was from your life before or something intrinsic, that wanted to plan a way out of it, because obviously that's not your life now. In fact, it couldn't be more opposite from what your life is now. And so I'm interested in, on reflection now, looking at it with some distance, what do you think it was about you in particular that allowed you to take the first step out of that space or toward recovery? Um, I think, well, I was always a very driven person and I always loved, I was in a bit of an achievement junkie. But you have to remember for the last five or six years, my job was in sports sponsorship. I was the Jerry Maguire flying around doing deals with Olympians and the best of the best. And I had been surrounded in gold medalists and the top people in their fields. And everyone had coaches and everyone built a team around them to get them to win a medal or to become the best or win a world championship. So I think for the last five years, I'd been really surrounded by people who wanted to be the best who wanted to strive. When they had injuries, you know, they built the team around them, they got through and maybe subconsciously that helped me as well. But I was lying there and I was just thinking, there's nothing wrong with me psychologically. You know, I I don't need fixing. I don't, I, I don't need encouragement, but my body won't move. I want it to move. I wanted everything to happen although I was falling into quite a deep depression because I couldn't. And so I'd be look outside and it would hurt my eyes and then I'd get really upset because I wanted to go out. I'd normally be doing a triathlon. So um, I got very upset a lot. And so I wanted a coach. I wanted someone to hold my hand to help me set a goal so it wasn't all up to me. So I had, I had the energy of somebody else who would challenge me, whereas your parents felt sorry for you or your friends felt sorry for you. I wanted someone to really try and challenge me to to be accountable, to write things down, to get the sticky notes out um, and to to set a mini goal each day so that I could see that there was maybe a, a just a whisker of improvement. When we were talking to uh, Sam Fricker, who's one of the Australian divers, um, who's angling toward the Olympics at the moment. Um, he was talking about when he had a, a quite substantial failure at his first international competition, and he was talking about getting out of that pool 
after really not performing anywhere near where he wanted to be and the impact that that had on him. And he said that one of the things that he fell back to uh, was allowing himself to feel the emotion of the failure and accepting that, but then also leaning heavily into the structures that he'd put in place to move forward towards the ultimate goal, which was to succeed. And he talked a lot about the impact that his coaches had on that and that his family had on that and that intrinsically his sense of organization and and motivation had on that too. But it's not dissimilar to what you're describing as well, where your instinct was to go through that athletic mindset to say that there are people who are excellent at what they do, but they don't do it alone. And to use that, I guess, in quite a novel way for the time, because you're essentially applying an athlete's uh, model to just daily life for you at that point in time? Oh, 100%. I was always very organised and very structured. That's actually my my gift, I suppose, and that's why I became a sponsorship manager. I had 200 athletes to look after. I was incredible at organisation and structure. So no one lost a contract. Everything was watertight. So I was really good at organising things and creating charts and and setting goals and smashing them. I loved it. I really loved achievement. So because that was so already in me, I just, what I wanted was a support person to cheer me on, to clap, you know, to, to say, yep, let's go to the next level. It was so lonely. I think it's an important lesson for a lot of people, isn't it? In that sometimes we feel like the small goals aren't worth building a team around. You know, or they aren't aren't worth trying to call in extra support. That somehow we should be able to do those basic things all by ourselves. But at certain times in your life, that's not always true. And having the uh, insight to recognise that uh, someone else's expertise can play a part in that and and be really beneficial is is really valuable. I think to the average person as well as the elite athlete. Um, and I know that's something that you've done a lot of in your life since too, which I'm sure was motivated by the impact that it had on yourself. But I guess before we get to that aspect of it and, and the value that you've seen that model uh, bring to other people, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got to that dark point in the first place, because really you were performing at an extremely high level in a number of different fields for many years before that. And in some ways, I guess the sustainability of performance in those sorts of fields is something that is very interesting to me and is very interesting to a lot of people, I think, who are motivated toward achieving great things. So I want you to take us back to when you were a part of Melbourne's trading industry, working around traders and seeing millions of dollars in trades sold and bought every day, and what it was like to get to that position in the first instance. I did my work experience at school, actually, um, on the stock on the trading floor. You know, when you'd get the ticket, and it's like Wall Street, and you'd run over through the crowd, and everyone's yelling and screaming, and it's so fast. adrenaline of it just sucked me in and I just went home and said, Mum, I'm going to be a stockbroker. I was just very, very excited and I wanted it so badly that the day I finished my year 12, I rang a stockbroking firm in Melbourne and I rang every single day, like twice a day, until the lady in HR just said, this, this girl is just not going to stop. And I was like, I'm not going to stop until I get a job. And I started in the, in the filing department in the dungeon. I was filing dirty old contract notes, dusty, inky, um, awful, awful, no, light, no windows. 
and I was so determined to get up to that desk and and it took me a few years but I had that drive you know the drive got you there and you were able to live that vision that you had and but I don't think it's just about hard work is it because there's lots of people who work very very hard who still don't achieve those sorts of things so what do you think it was about you at that point in time even when you're just out of high school that got you from the room where you were literally smelling ink and printing things to working amongst those on the floor where massive trades were being made like that's a massive leap I think I think it's street smart that hunger that dogged hunger um, where you you can look at people and you can see gaps and you can you can see, oh, there's a little path that I could get myself there. So I think it's a little bit of that street drive. Uh, maybe it's coming from immigrant parents, I'm not sure. Tell us a story about that. I know it's going back a little way, but I think this is actually really valuable to people because it's not intrinsic to everyone. It doesn't come into everyone's personality, but it is something that can be extremely valuable if you have an eye for it. Tell us a story about how you applied that street smart to move up through the ranks of the, the traders um, or to get to the point where they were going to give you a chance. Yeah, well, well one of the first things I learned was um, I need to learn football. I came from a European family where we only ever watched soccer. And I knew that if I was going to be a part of any conversation in a Melbourne stockbroking firm, you better know your sport. If you didn't know sport, no one was going to talk to you. No one would talk to you at the water cooler. How are you ever going to break through if you can't have a conversation about football, for example, or cricket, um, which I knew nothing about and I'd been at an all-girls school my whole life. So, yeah, it was very fascinating. So I really thought about what are people talking about and and and. And what do they talk about when they're filling up for coffee? And when you go for drinks after work, what are they talking about? And it was never about stockbroking. It was always about sport. So I started to think about if I can educate myself on sport, then I can be one of them. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the difference between doing something because you can do something versus because you want to do something. Um, and that's an important distinction for a lot of people because obviously societal expectations and what we seem to be or what is seen to be worthwhile is such a strong influence on what people do. Uh, and in some cases, what we actually want for ourselves uh, is completely different to that, but somehow takes a secondary rung to all of those external influences. And that's exactly what you're sort of describing, isn't it? Absolutely. And so I went from that to being a secretary and I didn't even know how to type. You know, but but it was with a lawyer who was very, very passionate about golf and he had 10 of the country's best golfers and he was their manager. So I was like, oh, I know a bit about golf because I've been talking about golf with all the stockbrokers. And, and he said, I will teach you how to run a business from the ground up if you're interested. So that to me was like a bone. This man could take me from this level to this level in business. It's so fascinating to me that your your uh, your career in sport was in so intrinsically uh, linked to uh, utilitarian decision during your stockbroken career. Um, but it's just interesting how lives are weaved together from really uh, odd circumstances. Um, and the same is true for me in many respects too. But um, when you were working uh, as a sponsorship officer, so one career further along than the one that you just described, um, I want to just dig into that just a little bit. Because what you're dealing with is fairly substantial risk all the time. 
you're dealing with lots of very high profile athletes i imagine hundreds of high profile athletes um, all of who have whom have uh, very high level careers that need to be maintained and that sponsorship is a critical component of um, and then you have brand reputation too which is no small thing when you're dealing with so many different individuals and personalities um, and so there's there's a huge number of factors there that can all go really really wrong on any given day and you mentioned your organization skills but i'm interested in how you approached that risk um, and how you approached organizing all of that to keep it as you describe watertight mm. Well, I was the only female sponsorship manager out there as well. So I, again, I went into this quite a similar environment, but I was the one with the money. So I had to spend it. So I worked with an eyewear company and there was two companies. There was Bolle and there was Oakley back in the 90s who were number one and number two in the country. So I was in competition the whole time and I didn't have the same budget as an Oakley who was an American company and Bolle was French and we had a very small budget. But I seemed to be able to get the best athletes. And for me, it was about building relationships. It was about caring. It wasn't a transaction for me. It was, I'm actually contributing to your life, to your pathway, to your, to your vision, to your dream. And I wanna be a part of that. So I became friends with the mum and the dad and the dog and the auntie and I'd watch them play sport. And I cared, I cared about them. I became a part of their team, a big part of their team. And then I would give their whole family product so the whole family's in the same gear and it was a big relationship piece rather than a, a buy and sell piece. So if you're advising somebody, you know, who's working in a high end of business, um, who is managing multiple different relationships, but also multiple uh, levels of risk, it seems to me like a lot of your advice is that you need to look at it from a personal point of view and an, uh, a relationship point of view more than just a financial or a risk benefit point of view that somehow one can follow the other, even in, I guess, an industry that we uh, historically think of as being quite impersonal, really. Well, you want the, that athlete to be with you for a long time and to be a part of your brand. You don't want an athlete for two years and you put them up on your posters and your advertising and then they go to the competition. That's, that's just a complete waste of time. So for me, it was the long road and the longevity and, and that the issue with sport is sports always played on the weekend. So I would do all the work during the week. Um, I was also the PR manager for the company because I was so organised, it was a little bit of a curse because it's like, well, she can handle more, she can handle more, we'll give her more. And you take it on because you can, but then you find yourself, oh, actually, I've got no life left and my health is suffering, but I'll keep pushing through because I'm doing a great job and I love my job. But sports on the weekend, so I'd go and watch all the sporting events and see the mum and the dog and the auntie but then I'd have to come to work Monday morning and do all the paperwork for the, for the week as well. It became all-encompassing, didn't it? I married the job. Yep. Yeah, I, I married the job. Did you watch the documentary The Last Dance, by any chance? Yes, yes. The Michael Jordan documentary. It's interesting actually thinking about it from your point of view. 
um, uh, coming to it because obviously that documentary is about someone who has achieved excellence almost at all costs um, and what was required, the sacrifice that was required in order to do that. Uh, but there's two things that jump out at me. One is that the relationship that he had with uh, Nike is so similar in a way to the relationship that you had with the uh, athletes that you were talking about in the sense that his decision was very much an emotional and a personal one as opposed to a financial one um, in terms of his relationship with what was a much smaller company at that time than he would have been able to get from someone else. Uh, but two is the fact that in order to succeed in the way that he did, uh, so much of the focus was on drive uh, for the goal above anything else in life and also holding everyone else to that same standard. And I wonder whether or not that fit into your own personal relationships as well when your entire life is built up around this work that you're doing. It's very important and satisfying work, but nonetheless, you're holding yourself to an extremely high standard uh, at all times. Did that start to seep into the way that you expected other people to act as well? and how you were driving forward? Oh, I think absolutely. And myself, I was trying to run um, and do triathlons at the same time because I'd, I'd met all of these triathletes. Oh, I think I'll do a bit of that too. Because I was slim, everyone thought I was an athlete when I was at events. So that sort of was like, that's really good for your ego. So, okay, I'll start doing triathlons. So. I was burning the candle at every end possible. I wasn't looking after myself with any rest. Um, I really didn't have a great diet because I was always on the I was always on that fast track. I had anything that was slow I thought was boring, you know, because you get addicted to the rush all the time. And I'm sure that you find that in the medical industry is how can you meditate? How can you be slow? How can you journal? How can we do all of those things that make us human when when we're addicted to the rush without a doubt without a doubt in fact people sort of ask you how do you work 13 or 14 hour days in a hospital for 21 days in a row and you know how is that even sustainable or, or doable for anybody without there being serious ramifications to it and yet there are people who are working in senior positions at the moment who have been doing that literally for 20 30 years and the answer to that question is you become addicted to it in the same way as you become addicted to anything that gives you an adrenaline high you know, when at any point in time there could be a trauma downstairs that you go down and sort out and you might have to take them to a, a trauma laparotomy or a big abdominal operation to go and save their life and, and then you can watch as someone recovers and, and does well after that and then you get the rush from seeing the expertise that you've been able to bring to the table and the team has brought to the table tangibly impact on someone's entire life. And you're always going through that cycle over and over and over again in, in either a small way or a big way. Um, it's not just like, you know, uh, any other job, uh, there's always something to give you that high. And there's big lows to it too. You know, there's the other side of the coin, but there's always the next hit, you know, and the next hit is a very virtuous thing. It's, it's helping someone. And so people can martyr themselves to the addiction in a way, which sounds like a really dark way to describe something that's inherently a fairly noble thing to do, but that, that, that's the other side of the coin. It's sort of like you're a functioning adrenaline junkie. And the other side of that is unbelievable loneliness. I find that the high is so high, but the low is so low. It's really got that big gap in the middle, I find, where, and we've seen this with all the athletes, haven't we, where they win a championship and then they go back to their hotel room and they're all by themselves and it's lonely. It's that idea that you're 
your professionally uh, your professional relationships are not the same as deep relationships yeah, like it's interesting that in a hospital you can spend literally 80 percent of your uh, awake time with a group of people and yet the depth of your relationship is somewhat superficial because you're only dealing with, with dealing with them in a professional context um, and you're not really connecting with people outside of that because people rotate around a lot uh, or they try and keep their personal lives personal so that it doesn't seep into what they're doing professionally as well. And that can take a real toll where you're, you're investing so much of your time in something that inherently um, has a limited amount of depth from a personal point of view. Mm, mm. You know, it's like the athletes as well. The athletes are surrounded by this team the whole time and then all of a sudden they get injured or they get dropped from the team or they have an early retirement and there's nobody. And, and, and that loneliness comes in where they were so fulfilled with the team around them, but they hadn't actually developed themselves as a human being. When you're coaching somebody now, having been through all of these experiences that we've, we've gone through, and they're saying, Shana, I want to be sustainable in this work that I love, and I want to do it to the highest level possible, and I need to somehow split the difference <laughs> in a way that allows me to perform in uh, excellence, but then also allows me to do it for a long time. How do you start that conversation with somebody when you know what's required to get to the top? You've lived it. I have, and I work with a lot of Olympians as well. They have to see themselves as a business. If you're the business, whether you're a, a doctor, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're an accountant, whether you're an, a, a sporting athlete, I actually class all of us as an athlete. You're a business athlete, a life athlete. You know, you can be a mum at home and you're an athlete. Is You have to see yourself as the asset. And when you see yourself as the asset, what do we need to do to make sure that the asset doesn't fall over? So what are the structures and the parameters and the boundaries that we need to put in place so you can have longevity? And we need to look at the role models. There are people that have done it. Uh, look at Roger Federer. He's the best of the best. He's got a family. He's got his foundations. He's kept his sense of humour, but he performs at the best because he's got the boundaries in place and he sees himself as the brand and the asset. When you marry the job or the brand or the hospital or, you know, you're a rock star and you're married to the, the crowd and the ego, that's where the trouble comes is when we actually can bring it all back, that's what you do, but that's not who you are. Roger Federer is just Roger Federer. And when we build ourselves as the business, we have a chance to be the best, but also not at the full destruction of everything else. So creating that, I imagine, is very individual for the people that you work with. There's, there's not really a template that you can sort of lift out and apply universally to say this is how you're going to achieve the Roger Federer balance that we're looking for. Um, it amazes me that people like Roger Federer have been able to perform at that level in that way for so long and remain what, what seem to be very functional human beings. Um, but of course, we're only ever seeing the, the outside of that. Um, it really interests me on the people who are doing that and doing it well consistently, but you get to see the inside of it. And so are there reproducible things, accepting that obviously it needs to be an individual construct, but are there reproducible things that you see that allow people like Federer to do what they do because you work with the elite CEOs, some of the elite athletes, some of the Olympians. Who are the people who do it really well and what, what are those key lessons that people can take away from that? 
So the first thing I always say to my client is, who are you without your job? That's a very confronting question. So who are you without your sport? Who are you without the big bank behind you? Who are you without the hospital? Who are you when we take your job away? Because I've seen many people take their lives when something is taken away from them, like their job, top cardiologists taken his life. I've seen athletes take their life because they thought they were their job. But we're not, we're humans. That's just what you do. And when we start our coaching that way, there's a whole new respect for self. That if I want to do this for the long term, if I want to be the leader in the field, there has to be some kind of human element to me. And, and I build the life plan that runs alongside the career plan. So once you have established those core values with someone, they say, Shana, I know who I want to be. I want to be a compassionate, hardworking person who loves my family and who has time for myself outside of work and who values the community that I'm working for and the, the impact that I'm having on them both professionally and personally. But I still need to work 14 hours a day to do the training job that I'm doing, or I still need to go and train eight hours a day for my Olympic preparation. Um, And that's still leading to all of these physical requirements. How do you then translate those values into decision-making that supports somebody's goals, but at the same time supports them as the business over longer term? Because when we go back to your values, they have a job. For example, my three values are health, family happiness, and achievement. They sit here on my computer. I cannot escape them. What am I doing for my family happiness? How am I showing up when I walk in that door? Am I showing up being a fun wife? Am I showing up being a warm mum for my kids? They don't care how many books I've sold, how many stages I've been on. They just want a muffin and a cuddle. So what the values do is bring you back to what is the regular attention that you are giving yourself, not once a year, not once a week, but on a daily basis. So you remember that you are the asset. It's about taking thoughtless action and making it thoughtful action, isn't it? It's about, as opposed to just operating on automatic on the things that I feel like I need to be doing at any given point in time, it's about consciously saying, what uh, impact are these actions having on me overall? And what are they having on the people around me? And do they fulfill the requirements that I've, I've made out to be important? Yeah, like an, like an achievement might be washing your hands, for example. And every time you wash your hands, you take five very slow, incredibly grounded breaths to change your nervous system. You then look up into the mirror and you connect with your best friend, which is yourself. You check in and make sure you're not getting swept up in ego or marrying the job, that you check in and go, we've got this. So washing your hands actually completely changes, doesn't it? The achievement for me was to slow down enough to take five breaths. Because those five breaths, eight times a day, changes my nervous system, which changes my energy. What you're describing when you say change your nervous system, I think there's a lot of people who might listen uh, from a medical background and, and raise an eyebrow, but what you're really talking about really is addressing your adrenergic or stress response 
It's about using mindfulness and breathing to downregulate the automatic stress response that you might be having to daily life. And there's a lot of good evidence now to suggest the value of mindfulness, of meditation, of breathing techniques to allowing you to get back to a baseline of functionality that isn't driven by that, um, uh, that stress, uh, fight or flight. Um, immediate response and it's interesting I think that how many people actually operate at that level and don't even realize anymore that they're operating on that level it becomes very unconsciously normal for people to be stressed and of course it's unpopular to say oh look I'm a stressed person because no one wants to be seen to be able to not cope but if you were to sort of like take the heart rate of every average person walking around and then you allow them to breathe for five minutes consciously think about them their, their breathing and center themselves and then retake their heart rate i guarantee to you the vast majority of people that you did that to you would see a difference it's called changing your state you know you might want to change your state to fire up which we can do through the breath can't we we can change our state to calm ourselves down we watch athletes do it every time we put the tv on you know you watch boxers go up to the mirror and they tell themselves and they, they train their brain that they can do it. We watch the tennis players sit in the change rooms and do their breathing. We watch people at the blocks on a 100-metre sprint. What are they doing? They're doing a breathing technique. So if all of these athletes are doing it and it's helping them win, why aren't we as normal human beings doing the same thing and learning from them? This is so valuable and it's such an ancient knowledge as well. I, I was recently reading a book called The Book of Five Rings uh, and it's written by a uh, Japanese samurai called Miyamoto Masashi. He has one quote in it that really struck me uh, because it's so applicable to so many aspects of life. And he was saying there are schools that say you should be aggressive when you're fighting and the only way to be successful is when you're really, really aggressive um, and you can overpower your enemy with aggression. And then he says, there are some schools that teach you to be incredibly passive and that you should be reactive to your enemy and in that way overwhelm them with your response and the technique that you apply to the response. And he, he says, from my experience, um, and he was recognized as one of the greatest swordsmen of his time, he said, you should approach every fight the same way as you would walking down a road, that you should be neither too elevated nor too passive, but rather you should be aiming to be the way that you would always be. And that that is the most effective way to get your prime performance or your best performance out. There's just one more angle that I want to approach from as well, which is when someone's identity that they want uh, isn't congruent with the identity that they currently have. Because so much of your behavior is driven by your identity and your sense of identity. And I'm interested in when you're going through that value proposition with people establishing what core values are and about who they want to be, how much of it can be changed? How much can people come to you and say, hey, look, I'm like this at the moment. These are the values that I have at the moment, but they're not the ones that I want. This is where I want to be. And how do I work toward that? What's that process like for people who actually want to be different? Oh, it's exciting. People don't just come to me who are broken. A lot of people come to me who, who say, I'm on my path. I don't want to make a mistake. I want to be supported, but I want to be the best possible version of myself. So I need someone to challenge me around my values, to change my habits, to challenge my habits, because it's all of those small, tiny shifts in the way that we think, the way we speak, the way we greet somebody that changes everything for us. It's never a big change. They're all small, but they're all very, very powerful. It's the power of mantra, 
isn't it, really? It's about centering yourself both physically and emotionally towards what your core value is and letting that rule the way you're thinking, the way you're acting and the way that, as you describe it, using your energy, which is such a precious commodity. I imagine also getting adequate sleep probably has a big component to play in all of this as well. Athletes need sleep. We all need sleep. Human beings need sleep, whether we can trick ourselves and tell us that we don't or it's a badge of honour that we can get by on four hours a night or whatever that might be that you've told yourself. You've been talking to some surgeons, haven't you? (laughs) Yeah, I know the stories. I know the stories. And you can tell yourself that that's fine. But it's actually not. And we know it's not. We need to restore. We need to recover. We can tell ourselves all of these stories. And there's some people that will get through, but the majority of people will not. Shana, I want to just uh, finish on a note uh, that I think is going to be really valuable to a whole range of people um, who are currently struggling with maybe it's that chronic fatigue that you're talking about or perhaps a less intense version that nonetheless is still debilitating to them. But as someone who's a type A personality who has been driven by success, has achieved things at an extraordinarily high level over a number of industries, I just want to hear what you would have to say to those people now. Looking back on yourself back then in that room with your housemate, if you, Shana Kennedy, uh, the successful life coach with all of the experience that you now bring to the table, could talk to Shana Kennedy back then, what would you be saying to her to try and give her a path forward? Life is this beautiful, beautiful journey and we're going to fall over a few times, but we really do want to learn from those lessons. I think when we can really honour all of the small wins every single day, that we can wash our hands and take a breath and look in the mirror, that's where it all comes in that we actually enjoy the journey to becoming great or we can enjoy the journey of our incredible jobs and that we're saving lives and that all of those surgeons are saving lives. Imagine if they could have find a bit of fulfillment, not just achievement in that. We can really enjoy it when we're on that podium. Hi everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of The Risk Equation. We'll be sharing who we have on next week at the end of every show. So stay tuned to hear who we'll be chatting to next. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. It's been a real pleasure to make, and I'm so appreciative of your reviews and ratings, both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot. A special thanks to Shana for joining me today. If you'd like to see more of her work, please check out her newest best-selling book, The Life Plan, Simple Strategies for a Meaningful Life. Our conversation in today's episode was just a preview of Shana's incredible work and expertise. So if you are after more, search for The Life Plan in any good bookstore or have a look online at shanakennedy.com. Now for next week's episode of The Risk Equation, we'll be chatting with world-famous soccer commentator Simon Hill. I'm incredibly excited for next Thursday's show. Simon was a remarkable person to talk to. Imagine speaking in front of millions of sports fans at once, knowing that any mistake you make could follow you for years. That's the conversation that we'll be having with Simon. Thanks again to Shana Kennedy for joining me this week and to all of you for listening. Take care.